Changed by Love is the teaching ministry of Pastor Jim Kevney of Calvary Chapel, Morris Hills, located in Dover, New Jersey. Our desire is to teach the Word of God with passion and simplicity, as well as a direct application for our lives. With that in mind... I realized that he had something that I didn't have. He had joy. He had joy. I began to realize that no amount of money, no amount of business success, no amount of stuff could buy joy. It just couldn't. And the more I worked and the more I achieved, the less joyful I was. It might be a person an experience, or perhaps a simple Bible verse that will point you to God and ultimately transform your life into a life of joy. God chooses an internship to begin to lead Pastor Jim into a relationship with himself. What a privilege to listen to our pastor's testimony today. His honesty will challenge you to seek after God and His direction for your life. It is not about living up to other people's expectations, but listening and responding with obedience when God speaks. Now let's open our Bibles and join Pastor Jim for part one of his message entitled, One Salty Day, The Day I Died and Came to Life. We'll have more information about the church and how you can get a copy of today's message, but for now, here's Pastor Jim. Once again, I would like to read to you Mark chapter 9, verse 50a, the first part of the verse, a half a verse that I read 25 years ago today. And to be honest with you, I totally didn't understand it. And it goes like this. Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Well, we all have special days in our lives, right? Days that stand out in our lives. Some of them are really good days. Some of them are really bad days. When it comes to good days, I have five what I would call monumental days in my life. Three of them were watching my three children be born. One of them was the day that I got married. And they were all made possible by the day that I want to talk about today, 1988, 25 years ago today. I don't really like to talk about myself. In fact, the two criticisms I get from most of you with my preaching is that I don't talk about myself enough and that I hurry at the end. You'd think it would be that I talk too long, but those are the two big ones I hear from you guys, and I'd rather just teach you the Bible. But today there's going to be an unusual amount of stuff about me, and I realize that everyone has a story, and I love hearing people's stories. March 24th, to me, resounds in Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And so the title of this morning's message is One Salty Day. One Salty Day, parentheses, the day I died and came to life. The day I died and came to life. 
I grew up in the suburbs of Long Island. I guess you could say I came from a religious family. I went to a religious school for 12 years. I come from a family that had quite a number of nuns and a few priests in my family. It was expected, actually, in the family that I grew up in, probably the generation before me, that you would give at least one of your children to the cloth. So I became an altar boy. I guess that was about as close as I would get to being in the cloth. Little did I know that I'd end up being a pastor someday. And I have to be honest with you, I found the whole religious thing to be strange. I really did. I just really didn't get it until I got into the seventh and eighth grade. And in the seventh and eighth grade, I had a teacher by the name of Sister Maria Brooke, who honestly, the, the godliness was coming out of her socks. And what she had us do, the only year in my 12 years of religious school that this happened, is she had us read the New Testament version called The Good News for Modern Man. Not a great version, but it had great pictures in it, all the little stick figures. And I could remember even being in seventh and eighth grade, being strangely drawn, strangely intrigued, strangely attracted to the person of Jesus Christ. Well, I went to high school in the 1970s, and that was, I guess, an era where the teachers were your friends, and going to a a religious school, the religious teachers particularly went out of their way to befriend the students and even inviting them over to their homes and uh, really apartments. They didn't have much money. And most of the religious teachers in my school, religion teachers in my school, were guys who had gone to seminary to become priests and dropped out. And there were kind of these hippie dudes because it was the 70s and they they were in their prime, I guess, in the 60s. And honestly, a lot of them were disillusioned with religion. A lot of them were disillusioned with the church. They were disillusioned with life. Now, in high school, I was a good student. I, was, uh, I had about 400 kids in my graduating class, and I was in a group of 20 kids that was in this accelerated program. Now, I was the bottom of the 20, or near the bottom of the 20, but uh, I was always a good student. I played sports, but towards the end of high school, when I realized that I wasn't going to go to an NCAA Division I uh, sports school or anything like that, I started partying with my friends. And I started, you know, going out on the weekends and you know, doing all kinds of stuff. I, I don't like to talk about all the bad things that I did because I think that really draws attention to me and not to what, what God has, has done in my life. And so then I, I went to Rutgers and I wanted to study environmental science but realized about six months into it that I hated it. So I changed majors, but I stayed there. And at Rutgers, I continued to party a lot more. And I didn't study Uh, which is kind of funny because now that's all I do is study, (laughs) but I didn't study when I was in school. But I always was a big reader. My mother always will say to this day, you know, the kid always, if he wasn't out in the backyard playing basketball or baseball, he was reading, not his school books, but, but he was reading something. At Rutgers, I guess the Beatles influence was still pretty big And so I took classes in world religion. You know, the Beatles were doing the whole Ravi Shankar thing and all that kind of stuff. And and so world religions were kind of big. And I took also took a class in Eastern mysticism and probably one of the few classes that I really did all the homework. I, I really read all the books because it was very, very interesting to me. Now, about the same time, my brother and sister, who are, are younger than me, got involved with a group called Youth for Christ out on Long Island, and still out there. 
and still around in the United States of America, but also at the same time, they sort of got involved in this weird, weird prosperity church. And so they started to tell me about Jesus. And it was, you know, I would be like, okay, whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm, here I am, you know, this is like 35 years ago, and I'm getting ready to go out and party and, you know, scope out girls and do all kinds of stuff, not knowing if I was even coming home that night. And my brother and sister would be like leaving for their Youth for Christ meetings or their weird prosperity church meetings. And they would go, we want you to know that Jesus loves you and we'll pray for you. And I'm like, you do that. Yeah, you, you go ahead. As some of you know, since then, one of the guys who was involved with Youth for Christ, I've had the opportunity to be in touch with him. And he said that when that this time was going on, that they actually had prayer meetings in front of my house for my soul. And unaware of the power of prayer at the time, I probably would have been like, what a bunch of weirdos. Now, in time, they drifted away from Youth for Christ towards the weird prosperity church until they figured out it was the weird prosperity church. And then they completely fell away from the faith and really don't have really much to do with it or want to have much to do with it to this day. It was very, very difficult on them. Well, after I graduated from college, I moved to California and I lived by the beach. I could see the beach, wake up and see the Pacific Ocean down by San Diego every morning when I woke up. And what I did was I, was a, I got a job through a friend and I was a light bulb salesman which was actually easy along the beach because they sold natural lighting. So I would just walk into the beach shops and say, look, your clothes look yellow, buy these lights and they'll look great. And so they would all buy them from me. And so then I would just go to the beach all afternoon and party, right? (laughs) This was my life. So that's what I did. And interestingly enough, one of the places that I tried to sell lights to was the Self-Realization Fellowship in Encinitas, California. So whenever I meet people from that area, I said, oh, I lived up the road from Swami's. It's a the surfing place, everybody remembers or they know where I live. And they would give you these books and they even had New Testaments there and they would give you these books for free. So what I would do was I would just walk by them. I'd get a couple books. I'd hang out there for a little bit. They were a little too out there for me. But then I would go down to the beach and I would read the books that they gave to me. And so when I was there for a few months, I got a call from the East Coast and I had an opportunity to fulfill what for me always was a dream and that was to start a business. The place where I had a job that I worked in the summertime, they offered me an opportunity to buy a vehicle from them and buy a route from them and start my own company. So what I did was I moved back and I started what would be called a local New York, New Jersey delivery company. Now, I had nothing when I started. I had $2,000. I had the beat-up van that I was paying them money back on that I, that I bought from them. And it's needed, you know, it was one of those things where you drive a little and you check the oil and you know, just every, every 20 minutes or something like that. It was always breaking down. But that van was dear to me. We called it the Silver Beast. And the Silver Beast was dear to me because it was my home. Because I was too proud to tell anybody that I didn't have enough money to pay rent. And so I lived in the rest stop uh, over by Elizabeth by Newark Airport. That was primarily the place where I lived. And I used to sleep on top of the deliveries that I was going to make the next day. And I would sleep in my van. That was 1984. By 1986, a year and a half to two years later, I owned a very, very fast-growing company. Fast enough, growing fast enough to be in magazines, 
for fast-growing companies. I was making a lot of money. I had a sports car. I rented a house. I had a house at the beach. I was, quote-unquote, in a very short time living the American dream. But here's the, here's the thing. Well, one thing I'll say, I had that, all those books that I read. I put the spiritual library in the attic. It, it meant absolutely nothing to me, so I chased the God of success. That became my God. And I'm going to be honest with you, it came very easy to me. It, it was not hard for me to chase that God and to realize all that that God had for me. But I didn't have a business. It had me. And all I did was work and party, and I was a runner too, and, and so I used to run too, but I was hooked. I was hooked. Those of you who were raised or alive in the 80s, you remember it was all about the money, right? It was all about money and partying, and that was my life, and I was very, very good at it. Now, I had a very, very large account, and, and they hired me to come in after hours and ship stuff for them, and it was very, very profitable, and this was a time in my life, again, that I was just making really crazy amounts of money. It would put me in the upper 1% today. And this is, uh, I'm a young guy in my 20s making that kind of money. And so it's a dangerous place. There, there was a guy in the place where I was working at night that worked for the cleaning service that this large Fortune 500 company is actually, it's one of the largest companies in the world. And so he worked there in the, in the same area where I did, and he worked for the cleaning service. Now, this young man and I couldn't have been more opposite. He was 17, I was 28. He was black, and I'm obviously not. <laughs> Although, I didn't grow up with racial prejudice. That was not part of my upbringing at all. I never even knew it existed in the Northeast until I went to Rutgers, to be honest with you. But, so that was not a big deal about that. He was from Elizabeth. I was from the suburbs. He was not educated. He was a, co- a high school dropout. I was a college graduate who had been considering going to grad school until the opportunity came to start my company. Uh, he was very, very poor, and I was not. And it's probably the poor and not that was the big thing for me because I, I sort of looked down on him because I had that, well, I make money, so I must be better than everybody else kind of attitude, forgetting that I used to live in my van at the rest stop only two years ago. And so by looking down on him, though, when he would tell me about Jesus because he was a Christian and I was not, and that was the big difference, I felt like I didn't have to listen to him. And so I, he was a Christian. In fact, I don't even know if he was. Seriously, he might have been an angel. Like, there was just this guy came into my life for just a couple months, few months probably, and then he was gone. I was like, what happened to that guy? Now, I would have said I was a Christian, but I wasn't. I I thought, well, I grew up with a religious upbringing. I went to church. I was an altar boy, and some weeks I would go to church five, six times a week, a few times on Sunday. But I was not a follower of Jesus Christ. And I gave that kid a really, really hard time. But I'm going to tell you something. That's probably why I am so comfortable with some of you who give me a hard time. That's probably when some of you say, oh, you don't know what my husband's like. You don't know what my wife's like. You don't know what like, my cousin or my brother-in-law's like or my coworker's like or my neighbor. I go to you, I'll go out with them. Let's go have lunch. Let's talk to them. Because I was one of those people. And I remember that hard stance, that, that wanting nothing to do with Christianity and wanting to disprove it to people. But after we worked together a little while, 
I realized that he had something that I didn't have. He had joy. He had joy. I began to realize that no amount of money, no amount of business success, no amount of stuff could buy joy. It just couldn't. And the more I worked and the more I achieved, the less joyful I was. And like I was too proud to tell people I was living in my van, I was too proud to ask him about it, but I watched him carefully. I know now that he was working for the Lord. I know now that God had put him there in my life for a specific reason, but I had no idea about it at the time. And the more he shared Jesus Christ with me, the more he told me about the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, the more I mocked him, mocking him even to the point of tears and thinking it was funny. In 1988, one of my college friends got a job at a law firm in New York City. And they were having some problems with their delivery service, so they had me come in, and I ended up taking them on as a customer. I uh, ended up dating one of his coworkers that I met there, and this was not a Christian relationship by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, she was raised in a church similar to ours in many ways, and we'll talk about that in a second, but we did not have a Christian relationship. Now, if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you're thinking, well, you know, here's the, some guy comes along or some girl comes along and maybe the only shot that I have of happiness and they're not a believer, trust me, it's not a shot at happiness. It is a shot at misery, pain, and what I did to her was I pulled her away from her faith. She was not pulling me towards it, I was pulling her away. Well, one day we had a very, very serious conversation and, and she was quite distraught and she told me that she was a Christian and she told me that she was going back to the church where her father uh, was an elder and that she just felt that that was the right thing to do. Well, of course, what did I say? Well, I'm a Christian too, right? Yeah, no problem. And so I said, I'll go with you. I'm like, what a good guy I am. No, no, I, I'm, I was what you know as a wolf in sheep's clothing pretending to be Mr. Nice Guy, and I wasn't at all. So in January of 1988, I visited their church with them for the first time. I had a really bad hangover the first time I was in church, and the name of the church was Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. I came to learn that it's quite a well-known church, and when I went in there, the first thing that really struck me was the diversity of the people. Because I remember thinking, uh, I'm kind of a people watcher, and so you can put me in a park, and I'll just, I'm fine, I'll just sit here and watch, I'm fine with that. And I noticed that there was people of different race and nationalities, and it wasn't as integrated as things are right now. Some of the people looked very wealthy, some of the people looked poor, some of the people seemed to be very, very bright, other people just seemed like they were either homeless or on on the verge of being homeless. And so the diversity seemed very, very odd to me. I was like, there's no reason why these people should hang out together doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that first day, the guest speaker was, is a very well-known pastor by the name of Dr. David Jeremiah, and he spoke about the advantages of adversity from the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And I remember he said this. He said that, that God doesn't always want to take away your problems. He wants to walk with you through your problems. And you remember the old V8 commercials? Bah, I should have had a V8. Uh, the light bulb just went on. I was like, well, duh. 
Well, duh, like, does it every, I never knew that. And it made so much sense to me because I was always like, well, God, take away my problem. He didn't take it. And I was like, well, you must be weak, God. I don't really care about you. I wasn't anti-God as much as I just didn't even care about him. I was just, I was just indifferent to God. So we walk out and, you know, the typical question, what do you think of the sermon? And, and her father came up to us and said, what do you think of the sermon? She was like, oh, it was okay. I guess she was figured, well, I heard all that before. And he said to me, how'd you like it? Which I always think is the funniest thing. We're not supposed to like it. We're supposed to either worship Jesus or repent. That's pretty, or both, right? And so he says to me, well, well how'd you like it? And I said to him, it actually made a lot of sense. Well, he just lit up thinking, oh, I got a live one here. So he invited me to go back to church with him. And so I started going back to church with him, but not her. She was not really going. So we started going every other week for a while together. Now, let me just say something to you if that's you today. That is a very dangerous place. Very dangerous place. One foot in the world and one foot in the church. That's what the Bible refers to. I didn't know this at the time as being double-minded. So what did I do? Every other Sunday morning, I'm doing the religious scene. And what do you think I'm doing the rest of the time? Partying like I never did in my life. Because there was a war going on in my soul, and I didn't fully understand what was going on. Jesus was getting close. And please, let me save you a lot of heartache if that's you today. You will not win. You will not win. You'll either lose in this life or you'll lose in the next one. And it's a hard battle. And like a fool, I began to fight it. Well, in February and March of that year, 1988, they were in between pastors And what they have sometimes when they're in between is they have a guy that they call an interim. And there was a a delightful old man. Some of you who are a little older and Christians longer than me would remember him. His name was Dr. Robert A. Cook. And he used to have a radio show and he used to say, walk with the king today and be a blessing. And it was kind of like hearing grandpa preach. And then he would tell you he owned a Harley. And I think he was as old as Methuselah, to be honest with you. And he would tell the same goofy jokes every single week. My father called me boy because he couldn't remember my name. And just week after week after week. And he would always say at the end, hey, if, if you think that God's calling you and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, why don't you slip up your hand? And I'd watch around the room and, and certain people would slip up their hands. And, and then, you know, I'd see, you know, 10, 12 people slip up their hands. It was a large church. And then... He would say, well, you know, when the last song's playing or afterwards, why don't you come down and talk to one of the elders? And like nobody would go down, really, compared to the number of people who would raise their hand because we're so afraid of what? What everybody else thinks, right? Well, one Sunday, I'm sitting in the far corner of the balcony. Why? Because I know, not because I was late, because I know God's getting close. And I really don't want to have to deal with this Jesus guy, right? So I go there and I sit in the way far up corner. I'm as far away from Jesus and that Bible and that old funny man as I could possibly be. And he says, hey, if you'd like to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today, why don't you, or hear no more about it, why don't you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? And all of a sudden I hear, I see your hand way up there in the far corner of the balcony. And I look at my hand and it's up in the air. (laughs) And that song started to play. And I knew God was talking about me. And God was talking to me. And that song started to play. And I just 
leveled everybody in my row and I ran down those stairs and I ran down to the front of that thing and I stood there by myself. Well, I talked with one of the elders of the church and we prayed and he said, let's get together and let's talk next Sunday. And I was really excited. Well, thanks for joining us for today's edition of Changed by Love with Pastor Jim Kevney the teaching pastor of Calvary Chapel Morris Hills in Dover, New Jersey. We want to be sure to tell you that today's message and many others are available on CD for a suggested donation of any amount. To get your copy of today's message from Pastor Jim, call us at Changed by Love at 973-659-3380. The only information you need is the date that you heard this program. Again, that number to call is 973-659-3380. Or send us an email. That address is info at changedbyloveradio.com. And when you call or email us to place your order, please let us know how God is using Changed by Love in your life. It's always a great blessing to hear how God is using the teaching of His Word in your lives. To learn more about Changed by Love, visit changedbyloveradio.com. There you'll find an archive of the past messages and a secure option to donate if you would like to help support this ministry. Again, that web address is changedbyloveradio.com. That's changedbyloveradio.com. In the next edition of Changed by Love, Pastor Jim will continue teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. That's next time on Changed by Love.